0: So, we're in Romans, and I am going to lead off by saying, I have no idea why Paul wrote this. Now, Schofield, in some study Bible, says he's writing it in anticipation of a visit, and that may be true, but if you think of the rest of Paul's letters, he writes to the Corinthians, because he's got word that they've got all sorts of problems in the church, and they're doing all sorts of stuff. He's been there before, and so he's writing to correct them. He writes to the Galatians, because he planted that church, and sometime later, people of the circumcision party had come through and were sowing confusion among them, so he's writing a letter to correct that. He writes the letters to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor. Paul is his mentor, and he's given him advice on how to be a pastor. Philemon, we're talking about an escaped slave. So every one of his letters is written for an obvious purpose. You read the letter and and you know who it's addressed to and he says what we're talking about, why I wrote the letter. He doesn't do that in Romans. It's just sort of blat and there it is. Now, I'm going to give you some background that many of you have heard, some of you have not, but I think it informs our study of Romans. You all remember the Council of Jerusalem. That's where Paul came back to Jerusalem because you had members of the circumcision party who were Jews who had grown up in Torah and were of the opinion that in order for Gentiles to come in and be saved, they had to be turned into Jews. No covenants with Gentiles, and that's a true statement, except Noah, because Noah's got everybody. But there aren't any covenants with Gentiles. And when the Holy Spirit landed on Cornelius and his crowd of Gentiles, every Jew in the house was, whoa, what's this? And furthermore, when Peter goes back to talk to his Jewish buddies, they all say, what are you doing? You're not supposed to eat in a Gentile house, right? So you have a circumcision party that is of the opinion that we got a way to bring people into the kingdom of God and it involves discipleship, call them proselytes, at the end of which we circumcise them, turn them into Jews, and they're in, and off we go. The Council of Jerusalem says, no, they don't have to become Jews. They continue to be Gentiles, but they have got certain things that they need to abide by. And several opinions on why that is, one of which is, if you meet that minimum standard of behavior you can come into the synagogue and you can have fellowship and that's where the books are and that's where Moses is read so that's one opinion I was listening to Ron Dart the other day who I highly recommend and one of the things he was saying is someone convinced against his will is not convinced so the idea that the council of Jerusalem ruled against the circumcision party didn't make the circumcision party go away so they're still out there rumbling around Of the opinion that the only legitimate way for a Gentile to come into the church is to become a Jew. So that's sort of thing one. As we read the letter, we find that parts of it are addressed to Gentiles and parts of it are addressed to Jews. So he's aiming at a mixed audience. Where would you find a mixed audience? In the synagogue, because the Gentiles who have been smacked by the Holy Spirit and have decided that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their God, you got to go to the synagogue because that's where the books are. And that's where you can read Moses and the prophets and all of that kind of stuff. So the idea here that he is addressing both Jews and Gentiles and is expecting both Jews and Gentiles to read his letter indicates that perhaps it is being written to a synagogue. Certainly there is friction between the Gentiles in the church and Jews in the church. And that's one of the things that's addressed loud and clear here in this letter. So the idea then that you have Jews who have the scrolls, the books, you have Gentiles who don't know nothing except that they've got the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to both of those groups. And one of the things he says, I would love to come visit you folks, but I haven't been able to yet. Now, the other thing that's going on, and again, most of you have heard this, is in Rome or in the Roman Empire, there were sort of two religious standards. Standard number one is if you were a member of a religion of long standing, quote unquote. In other words, you were coming from some place where they had a religion, you were a member of that religion, you've been a member of that religion all your life, the place where you came from was under that religion, you were allowed to continue in that religion. Otherwise, you were expected to be a nominal member of the cult of Caesar. Caesar was regarded much as Pharaoh was regarded as a demigod. So there was literally a cult of Caesar, and you had to go to a temple, some temple, doesn't matter whose, and you had to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar once a year, and that was regarded as a test of loyalty. You could worship Diana, you could worship Zeus, you could worship whoever you wanted, but once a year you had to go to one of these temples and make a token offering to Caesar. If you didn't do that, you were regarded as a rebel. And if you were caught not doing that, the penalty for rebellion was crucifixion. Jews were exempt because they were what was called a religio licita, which means a legal religion, a religion of longstanding. And they weren't going to sacrifice to Caesar, but they weren't causing any trouble. So Jews are okay. So you've got Gentiles now who have come into belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but are not Jews. And they come in and they say, oh, can't offer a sacrifice to this pagan deity anymore. I guess I'll come over to the synagogue because they don't have to do that. Well, the Jews, uh, not so fast, white man, because if you come in here as a Gentile and are hiding out and using us as cover to avoid a loyalty test to Caesar, we could be accused of harboring rebels. So if you want to come into our synagogue and you want to take advantage of the fact that we don't worship the Caesar, we got a way to make that happen. And we'll take a little off the top and we'll turn you into a Jew and everything is kosher. So you've got four groups of people in Rome. You've got Jews, not messianic, you know, the gangster hats and the curlicues, Jews. You have got messianic Jews, Paul being an example of a messianic jew raised in judaism been a jew all of his life believed now in yeshua what we would call a messianic jew but a jew nonetheless then you have proselytes which are gentiles who have come into the synagogue and have been convicted hearing the scriptures read and have decided to become jews and they're in the process of going through discernment, uh, going through classes, all that kind of stuff, which will culminate in circumcision and they will become Jews. So they're called proselytes and they're also legitimate. Then you've got the Corneliuses of the world. Not a Jew, doesn't intend to become a Jew, full of the Holy Spirit, believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we don't know what to do with them, at least not if you're a Jew. And I don't need to tell guys, but adult circumcision is a big deal. Adult circumcision is not something that a man would approach lightly. And so the idea that I have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I have the Holy Spirit, I believe in God, and all that kind of stuff, and I am saved in the Baptist sense, why do I need to mess with this circumcision stuff? And that's the problem that's happening with the galatian church that's the problem that's happening with the the party of the circumcision it's a big controversy so we're going to talk about circumcision in here we're going to talk about election we're going to talk about grace we're going to talk about law all that kind of stuff is in here i'm still not sure why he wrote the letter having said all that in the corinthian letter he says all right i know this is the problem you have he talks about marriage and divorce. He's talking about it in the context of previous correspondence. And if you don't know that, you're left to sort of guess what the question was that he's giving an answer to. We're reading somebody else's mail here. And in a lot of these letters, we know what the context is. In Romans, we don't necessarily. That's all I'm saying not saying I don't like the letter. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the letter. I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying I'm having trouble putting some of these things in context. Because if you read Corinthians and you take them as absolute statements of gospel, not recognizing that he's answering specific questions, you'd come to the conclusion that men aren't supposed to marry. Well, that's not what he's saying. He's answering a question. He's talking about it in the context of a problem that they have. That's why I'm doing this little riff here on... I'm not sure of the context. All right. So Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Messiah Yeshua, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Yeshua Messiah. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and grace from God our Father and the Lord Messiah Yeshua. Several things here. First off, loved by God and called to be saints. That includes non-believing Jews. Read the book of Daniel, for example. Religious Jews, I don't know if there are any other kind in those days, were called saints, just as believing Christians are today called saints. Not saints in the Roman Catholic sense, but saints as in believers of God. So the first thing is called to be saints doesn't necessarily limit it to Christians. Because if you read the Tanakh, believing Jews are called saints. And he is, among other things, a believing Jew. Now back up to verse 3. Concerning his son, he being God, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the thing that declares to the world that he is the Son of God is his resurrection. And that declaration is by the Spirit. And then, verse 5, through whom we receive grace and apostleship, in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Messiah Yeshua. So, The reason that Paul is an apostle is because he is sent to call the world to the obedience of faith. So that's all by way of introducing himself and stating right up front who Yeshua is, who he believes him to be, and by what authority he believes that Yeshua is the Son of God and he's also the Messiah. The resurrection is the thing that is the witness that he's the Son of God. Being a descendant of David qualifies him to be the Messiah. And notice we have both of those in that introduction. Both the descendant of David and son of God. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Yeshua Messiah for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. One of the things that he desires to do is come visit, and he has desired to come visit other folks, and sometimes he succeeds and sometimes he doesn't. One of the things about writing business letters is you sort of say nice things about the people you're writing to. And that isn't to say that it's not true, I'm just saying that the Bible is a human document written by people. And people who read the Bible with a Greek mindset often find themselves in weird theological places because they take things that are intended to be polite or exaggerated. Like, for example, Corinthians drips with sarcasm where he's telling them, you guys know everything and I'm just an apostle and, and, you know, on and on. And it's just dripping with sarcasm. And so if you take that kind of stuff literally, you can wind up in some strange places. And again, I'm not saying that the Roman believers here were not renowned. I'm simply saying that it's also by way of being polite as he's writing to them. Verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. A couple of things about that. You all know Peter and Paul. Peter has got the Hebrew franchise. Paul has got the Gentile franchise. So his mission is given to him by Messiah. And by the way, it's given directly to him by Messiah. He doesn't get it from other people. To teach dumb Gentiles about Yeshua and to teach them Torah. Peter's job is to teach Jews about Yeshua. And so Peter's letters assume an understanding of the scriptures that Paul's letters do not. So Paul will basically teach him how to suck eggs, where Peter will assume that they already have a base and a background in the scriptures, and will go from there. So the letters are very different in that respect. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a difficult one to understand. And the best translation, or at least a translation that makes sense to me, is in the Revised Standard Version. So let me read it to you again. Verse 16 from the Revised Standard. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. One of the big deals in the letter is going to concern righteousness. And this is one of the places where having a Hebrew mindset is useful, because with a Hebrew mindset, you can say all sorts of different things about something from different perspectives, and they can all be true. You don't have to say everything you know in one sentence, although Paul sometimes tries. So in one place, you'll have that your righteousness comes to you as a gift from God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. And you get your righteousness just exactly the same way Abraham got his righteousness. And Abraham got his righteousness before he was circumcised. Therefore, you who are not circumcised can get your righteousness exactly the same way. So Paul will go into a big riff on the fact that you don't need to be circumcised in order to obtain the righteousness, which is a gift from God through belief in Messiah Yeshua. So Abraham believed the promises of God. And it was a clandestine for righteousness. You believe the promises of Messiah. Same thing happens to you. Then in the next paragraph, you'll turn around. So does that mean that you don't have to behave well? Well, no, 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 no. That's not what it means at all. You've got to behave properly. And all of those things are true. It's all belief. And you don't read the part where it says, yeah, but you've got to behave. You, you get a distorted picture. So verse 16 from New Jerusalem Bible. For I see no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power for the salvation of everyone who has faith. Jews first, but Greeks as well. For in it is revealed the saving justice of God, a justice based on faith and addressed to faith. As it says in scripture, anyone who is upright through faith will live. You see the problem we're having with this? I've read now three different translations, and they're all subtly different. Listen to New Jerusalem, the last chapter, verse 17, anyone who is upright through faith will live. And going back to the revised standard, he who through faith is righteous shall live. You notice the difference? In other words, you who have faith, and because you have faith, you behave righteously, therefore you will live. I'm simply saying it's a hard one to understand. I happen to like that one because I can understand it. Whereas the English standard one, I find harder to understand because it's, go back to English standard, which is where I was earlier. The righteous shall live by faith. That's just a straight quote out of Habakkuk. What does it mean? Does it mean that those who are righteous will live by faith? In other words, if you are righteous, then you will live by faith. Or does it mean if you have faith, you will live righteously? I happen to like the one that is he who live righteously because of his faith will live. I like that one very much. But what I'm saying is I have no confidence that it's what Paul meant All right, after all of that, now he proceeds to lace into somebody. And we go from here, which is all polite and straightforward, to fire and brimstone. I don't know why. Let me read it from New Jerusalem. And I'm going to read straight through 17 and on into 18. I'm not going to pause. For I see no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power for the salvation of everyone who has faith. Jews first, but Greeks as well. For in it is revealed the saving justice of God, a justice based on faith addressed to faith. As it says in scripture, anyone who is upright through faith will live. The retribution of God from heaven is being revealed against the ungodliness and injustice of human beings who in their injustice hold back the truth. So he's talking in 16 and 17 about righteousness, and now he's talking starting in 18, about those who do not qualify under 16 and 17. Now, let me get back to English Standard. So, 18 now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, the first casualty of unrighteousness is the truth. What he's saying here, and I completely agree, is... If you are going to go off into unrighteousness, the first thing that you have to do is ignore and suppress the truth, because the truth is the word of God. And if you're going to go off the rails and go do your own thing, you have to invalidate the word of God and somehow say that it does not apply to you. So we have a presidential candidate who is doing that right now. The first casualty then becomes the truth. Verse 19. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's even worse today. What we have now is the elevation of human reason above faith. And what we have is very clever men who have come up with an idea that all of the things that have been created are, in fact, accidents. So they look at nature and they do not see a designer. And by the way, that's why you need to have billions and billions of years, because you can say to those who are somewhat gullible, well, if you got enough billions of years, it could have happened. I can remember being taught that in grade school science class. You got enough billions of years, anything's possible. You know, sort of the old, if you have a million monkeys hitting typewriters at random, one of them's (laughs) gonna come up with a Shakespeare sonnet. That's not something I made up, but my point is, what they have done is they have denied that there is a creator and they have attributed to the things that are created, randomness, chance. So we have made great progress Since we used to worship statues and so forth, now we worship nothing. Isaac Newton, who was a great Christian man, in addition to being one of the giants of science, had an atheist friend come into his study or wherever he was, and and he had on the table an horary, a model of the planet on wires where everything circles around. And this guy says, Wow, that's really beautiful. Who made it? Nobody made it, it just appeared. And the guy says, that's absurd. No more absurd than what you believe. Anyway, where am I here? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The idea here is... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Remember, we said up at the beginning, the first casualty when you want to be unrighteous is you have to suppress the truth. And so he comes full circle down here. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Now, I am just absolutely at a loss how anybody who takes the Bible seriously can come up as an open and affirming church. I don't get it. And by the way, John does the same thing in Revelation. This is not just Paul. It's Moses Paul, John, Yeshua, all of them, all the heavy hitters in the Bible, they all say the same thing. I'm not sure what mental gymnastics people go through to say it's okay. I haven't wanted to study that, quite frankly. God gave them over to a depraved mind, which is to say they, professing to be wise, become fools, they think their minds are working correctly, but in fact their minds are not working correctly. I am an absolute sinning justification monkey. I'm really good at it. And whenever I wanna do something that at some level I know is wrong, I come up with a really good reason why the rules don't apply to me. Yes, God made them that way, that's true. But God made every one of us with flaws. He didn't make anybody perfect. I mean, he came close with me, but you know seriously he didn't make anybody perfect and the fact that the homosexual has one set of imperfections that are different than my set of imperfections god made us both that way and what he expects us to do is overcome those imperfections at the end of verse 27 men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error what we are talking about there are blood-borne diseases Somebody said once that if people would stop screwing around in unapproved ways for one generation, venereal disease would die out yeah. <laughs> because it would never get transmitted. There's no danger of that, by the way. I think the venereal diseases are safe. You can rest assured that it's okay. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that sound like Somebody you see on the news, I'm very serious. That seems to me like a lot of the people who are heavy hitters in our popular culture. 31 again, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the whole point here is sin recruits. If I'm the only one sinning, I feel really bad because I feel out in the open all by myself. But if I can get a crowd to all of us do the same thing, ooh, then my sin is okay. And so what our popular culture does is those who practice such things work really hard to gain the approval of others for their sinfulness. That's what Twitter is all about. That's what social media is all about. You go, girl, or whatever, as girl is walking around with a pink hat looking like whatever. The point here is the culture, and by the way, I don't know that our culture is any more rotten than, say, Nazi Germany was, or Imperial Rome, or Jerusalem before the Babylonian captivity. We're, we're pretty normal, unfortunately. Uh, but the point is what happens in society and with the electronic media and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all those kinds of things, we reinforce each other in our sinfulness. And you can always find a YouTube group that caters to your particular sin. They recruit. And so what they do is then they affirm each other and confirm each other in their behavior. And, feed upon that which prevents them from repenting because anybody who repents is ostracized from the group when one of them comes out of the group and breaks with the group think they're ostracized and they lose their community Mm -hmm. and that's a very powerful thing to lose your community so what paul is saying here is someone who suppresses the truth because he wants to do something that God says is not good winds up down at the bottom of this list because just as when you come to Messiah and you put your faith in God God will arrange things to help your faith along so will Satan so whichever way you decide to go you're going to get help going that way. And what Paul is saying here is that it all starts with a lie. And from there, once you believe a lie, all the rest of this stuff naturally (laughs) flows.